Thank you, Holly, for uh, reminding us of greater grace and uh, yeah, being willing to to share. I'm heavy-hearted this morning. I'm heavy-hearted at the experiences of uh, the last few days in particular. Um, I'm grieved by another unnecessary killing of a black man at the hands of a white man. I'm grieved at the loss that a family felt this week that could have easily been avoided, humanly speaking. I'm grieved over the ongoing racial tensions and brokenness in our country. I'm grieved over how those have even impacted our city over the last 24 hours. I'm grieved over how this reality affects my minorities, and even specifically my minority brothers and sisters in this church whom I call family. I'm grieved over the destruction that lies in cities across this country and even in our city, and the lives and the businesses that will need to be rebuilt. I'm grieved over corrupt authority I'm grieved over the fact that good, proper authority isn't trusted. I'm grieved over injustice. And so my my soul is heavy this morning, and God in his kindness has seen fit to place us in James chapter 4 on the Sunday following this, this heaviness. God in his kindness has has us looking at a text, hearing from a sermon that's entitled, Greater Grace for a Great Problem. And so I just want to draw attention to the fact that the hope that this sermon is pointing us to is the same hope that we're in need of this morning. That as we look around, we can see a great problem. And what I pray happens over the next few moments is that by his Holy Spirit, the Lord would allow our eyes with problem in mind to take our eyes off of the problem. That we would find ourselves gazing at a greater grace and having been affected by that grace, then with grace-filled eyes, begin to look at the problem and think of how we address it. God in his mercy has brought us to this passage to infuse our wearied hearts with great hope this morning. And so friends, I just want to remind you, there is much hope in this soul-searching passage that we will walk through. And the invitation from our God is to come all who are weary and to find rest in him. And so this is what I'm aware. I'm aware that distractions abound. I'm aware that, uh, and I feel the tension of rightly addressing cultural events and realities at the same time, uh, being faithful to the text. And so 
I pray, and I've been praying, I'm jealous for this. I'm jealous that we don't miss hearing from God in and through the preaching of his word. So would you pray with me as we open our Bibles and jump to James chapter 4. Let's pray. God, in great mercy, would you meet with us? And as James has been reminding us, would you change us? Encounters with you leave people changed. And our world is in need of Jesus encountering saints who are ready and willing and who make a change. And so, by your Spirit, meet with us now. Remove distractions. Allow the spotlight of your Holy Spirit to shine on our hearts. Everything about difficult days wants us to look without. Would you help us to look within? And in looking within and seeing the hopelessness that is there, would you then remind us of the grace of Jesus as Holly testified to, a grace that is greater than all of our sin. And so we're in need this morning of your spirit to take the word that goes forth and would you make what is heard far more effective than what is preached? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 4, passage that Holly read this morning, verses 1 through 10. And we're continuing in our series through the letter of James. And James has been such a kind gift to us from the Lord. James is writing this letter to scattered Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And in the, face of, in the face of persistent trial, James is writing to call these Christians to not give up. Don't lose heart. And to evidence their faith by how they live. In many ways, James is saying, your faith was made for days like this. It was made for difficult days. What they believed about God was to make a clear and discernible difference in how they lived. And James is saying it's not enough to, to merely say, I'm with Jesus, and yet for your life to look like the world. So with the heart of a pastor and the skillful hand of a surgeon, James takes up his pen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he writes this letter. And over the past few weeks, we've begun to see this topic of worldliness began to become more and more prominent in James's thought. Last week, we saw James contrast this false wisdom that comes from the world with a true heavenly wisdom that comes from above. And James knows that following Jesus through various trials, which is what he prayed and said at the very beginning of his letter, that we would be able to uh, consider it all joy as we endure trials James knows that following Jesus through the various trials of this life, it will not last if we're looking to the world for our answers. The world cannot provide answers for problems that the world creates. 
And so the bottom line, if we look to the world for our answers, James will say, then we will miss out on the truly good life that God provides. And that truly good life is only found in God himself. And so we'll look at two points this morning that will move us through these 10 verses. Two points. I'm sure there will be sub-points at some point. Two points. Number one, the symptoms and the cause of our great problem. The symptoms and the cause of our great problem. Just, and we see this in verses one through five, so just listen again with that sort of heading in mind, the symptoms and the cause of our great problem. The word of the Lord says this, James chapter four, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own or on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Who among us is not familiar with with relational conflict. No one. There's none among us who isn't familiar with relational conflict. And James begins this section, it's, it's interesting, he begins to talk about the strife that we feel relationally, and that's coming on the heels of verse 17 and 18 of chapter 3 that says the wisdom that's from above, it's pure, it's peaceable. It's gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so James holds this beautiful picture of peace in relationships, the truly wise experiencing the fruitfulness of peace. And then in the next verse, he says, and yet the reality is that so many of our relationships are marked by conflict and fighting and quarreling. Verse 1 lets us know that the original audience lacked discernment. They lacked discernment as to the cause. And James not only serves them by writing this, but he also serves us this morning. Because here's the reality. Regardless of whatever sphere of relational conflict you have, Regardless of whatever flavor of relational conflict you have, all of the cause is the same. Relationships between spouses, relationships between parents, children, children, parents, relationships between siblings, relationships between friends, relationships between neighbors, relationships between employers and employees, relationships among church family, all relationships are affected by the symptoms of brokenness and they all have the same root cause. And James makes it clear that the outward symptom of a bad relationship with someone else has an inner side that consists of a flawed relationship with God. And it would serve us well to not forget that. 
that the outward symptoms of a bad relationship with others has an inner side consisting of a flawed relationship with God. In James' language at the beginning of chapter 4, it would have startled the original reader as the metaphor that he uses. The metaphors of war, the metaphors of murder. He's not talking about real, actual war and, and actual murder. But those images, those metaphors are meant to evoke horror in the listener to understand how devastating this really is. And he acknowledges the symptoms. The symptoms are fighting. The symptoms are quarreling. The symptoms are conflict. Symptoms are the the waging of war, the back and forth, the we cannot have peace in this relationship. Those are all the symptoms. And then he says, behind all of them lies a condition that exists in every individual. What is the condition? Verse 2 is not the source, is not the cause that your pleasures, your translations, uh, your translation may read passions, your passions wage war in your members, among your body, with itself. Pleasures or passions are at war within us. Another way of saying it is that selfish desire for personal pleasure and personal satisfaction is the source of disharmony in relationships with others. Selfish desire for personal pleasure and personal satisfaction is the source of disharmony in relationships with others. Right? And I think we all know and understand what this warring feels like. What it's like to have passions and pleasures at war within our hearts, especially as Christians. It's this warring that makes nearness to God feel like a drudge, such hard work. It's crazy that we can binge Netflix for hours upon hours and then struggle for 15 minutes alone with the Lord. What is that? That's the waging. Members, I don't desire this. I know I need this. It's this war that's waging within us. It's why we can jump out of bed so early at the prospect of a new adventure or a vacation and yet struggle to get out of bed to spend time with God himself. This waging of a war within. It's why it's so easy to slander someone and yet so hard to ask for forgiveness. This waging of a war That's why we want to be better than other people. And it would lead us then to strip people of the image of God away from them. And when that happens, then anything goes. And it's this war back and forth. I want to be better. Well, being better means I'm going to have to cross some lines. Okay, I'm willing to cross the line. I know I shouldn't cross. And it's this war that begins to wage. It's so easy for us to do religious things for God. And we find it harder to just spend time being with God. Do you know this war? Do you know this war within? Do you know this war 
And do you see the destruction that it causes in the relationships around you? You may be thinking, ah, oh, yeah, you're all up in my mail. You're reading my mail. I'm not reading your mail. I'm reading all of our mail. This is true of every one of us. These passions want to lead us away from the Lord. These, these warring desires to sort of terminate all of, all of life onto us, to, to sort of have all of the existence, the reason for my existence, it sort of it terminates on me. And that desire for selfish, or that selfish desire for pleasure and for satisfaction as the utmost thing that I will pursue. That desire wants to lead us away from the Lord and it doesn't care if it does it overnight or if it does it over four decades. Little less prayer, little less Bible, little less community, little less closeness. And then one day we wake up and we go, I am so far away from the God I belong to. Passions are at war within us. When our desires for fulfillment and satisfaction take precedent over our loyalty to God and our love for others, that's when war begins to happen. When our desires for fulfillment and satisfaction, when they take precedent over our loyalties to God and our love for others, that's when the war begins to wage and it would, be, it would be helpful for us to understand that as he talks about pleasures and passions, he's not merely talking about sexual impulses or carnal urges. He's talking about any desire for personal fulfillment in any and every form. And so we would deceive ourselves in thinking, wow, good, that's good. I don't struggle with physical lust in that way. And so I'm not, no, 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 no. It's any wrongly prioritized desire for satisfaction that would set us against loyalty to God and love for others. And this is why this is so difficult. It's what we talked about a few weeks ago. There is a wisdom that is pumping at us through, uh, from the world that we don't even realize how we're being shaped by that. What James is saying here is literally the exact opposite of what the wisdom of our world will tell us that the issue that, that you have in relationships has everything to do with the circumstance of that relationship. The message of the world says you look out for number one if you're going to have the good life. And this isn't to downplay all of the complexities of disunity and disharmony. But I wonder how much conflict could be avoided if we would just deny ourselves, seek to understand others, as opposed to demanding being understood first. And so this morning, we would be served by asking the question, what relationship do you find yourself estranged in this morning? What relationship is off? What relationship is not marked by God-honoring unity, by God-honoring giving, God-honoring receiving? And I wonder how deep-seated selfishness is at the root of the disunity that we feel. Oh, 
And let me clarify, not deep-seated selfishness of the other. I wonder how your and my deep-seated selfishness lies at the root of the disunity and the disharmony that we feel. Do you care more about your reputation? Do you care more about your feelings? Do you care more about your needs and your wounds and your hurts than you do about your brothers and sisters? And so James serves us this morning by taking our eyes off of the fighting and the quarreling, by taking our eyes off of the symptom and placing them on the source, our hearts, for therein lies the problem. We could say it this way. Cravings underlie conflict. Under every conflict, there are cravings that are unsatisfied. And you and I will never make progress in the Christian life if we fail to understand the seriousness of our sin. Sin is not an isolated action. It's a condition of our hearts. We're sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. And so every one of us, every one of us has this inclination and this posture. James is saying, whatever it is that you think in your mind, kind of what's, the, what's an area of sinful behavior or an attitude or a posture of heart that you're trying to get a grip on? James is saying, whatever the answer to that is, that's the symptom. There's something underneath that we need to address. And James then helps us understand how this war wages in verses two and three. He says, you lust and you do not have, so what do you do? You take matters into your own hand to get what you don't have. You murder. You envy and you can't get, so what do you do? You fight with others who have what you have. You quarrel with others. You go back and forth. There is no peace. Underneath every unresolved conflict lies unsatisfied craving. And what's crazy is that this war, this, these pleasures, these passions that are at war within us, they are never satisfied with what we have. They always want more. Never satisfied with what we have. Always wanting more. And so James, James, again, a skillful pastor. He knows that. And so he doesn't just say, well, you lust and you don't have, so you murder. You envy and you can't get, so you fight. He then takes these horizontal relationships that are broken and he kind of roots the, he, he anchors the root of that. I was going to say he roots the root. He anchors the root of that to the vertical relationship that's broken. Look at what he says next. You you do not have because you do not ask. They want something. They can't get it. We want something, and we can't get it. You want something, and you can't get it. I want something, and I can't get it. So what do we do? We do whatever we have to do in order to get it. And James has been reminding us over and over in this letter, Christians don't have to do that. Why? Because there is a generous God who gives every good gift. He's more than willing. He will not. He will not neglect his people. 
He draws attention to their deficiency in their relationship to God. And now we're really able to see behind the, the, the curtain. They're quarreling and they're fighting. It reveals a deficiency in their relationship with God, particularly in their prayer life, because they're not even praying. Instead of going to the one who gives all good gifts about the things that they long for, the original readers are taking, thing, taking matters into their own hands to go and to get what isn't theirs. And I keep saying they because James is writing to a particular audience, but this is we. We do this. They have the faith to pray. They've been given access to the living God. James has told them that he's more than generous to give them everything they need. And they don't run to him. Instead, they think they can get on their own, from the world, what it is that they need. They have failed to put into practice what James' older brother, his half-brother, Jesus, had said. Ask and it will be given to you. And so instead of praying, do you know what they're doing? They're fighting. Fighting draws the senses and grabs the attention of these pleasures that are waging war within us and praying seems so outdated, so not even profitable. And because there's not a trust in God, then they have to trust in self and begin to take matters into their own hands. They have drifted from their friendship with God and they have become friends with the world. They have forgotten the generosity of God, James 1, 17 and 18. Persistent, unresolved conflict often reveals that something is off with us. Something is off with us, and it's off with us not only in relationship with others, but also in relationship with God. And James says, you're not even praying. And I'm sure there would have been some in the crowd who would have said, hey, not me, James. I'm praying, and I still have these conflicts. And James said, addresses them in verse three. Will you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures? They are demanding from other people what only God can give them. And as they pray, when they pray, they pray as a means of manipulating God so that God would give them something else that would satisfy the, the cravings and the urges of their passions. I mean, it's so backwards. It's so backwards. These people are praying, and they're praying as though God is a, a heavenly vending machine. I'm praying to you because you will get me what I want. And all throughout the scriptures, prayer has never been the sanctified version of you continuing to love you. You continuing to live as though life terminated on you. Their hope was to get things out of God, not to get more of God. And 
and all along, the broken relationship with God and the conflict-riddled relationships with others, they evidence, verse 4, they evidence a friendship with the world. The opening words of verse 4 are meant to stun and startle the original reader. One commentator, Doug, Doug Moo, says, The abrupt and harsh, you, you adulterous people, marks the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repent in the New Testament. And it's good for us to, to remember, you adulterous people was written to genuine Christians. Wasn't, wasn't written to people who didn't believe. And this language would have been familiar with the reader, with their Jewish background, particularly echoing Hosea, the prophet Hosea. You adulterous people. And James has been writing to just show them at different places how worldliness began to set into their lives. And James wants them to understand that worldliness, that becoming friends with the world means becoming an enemy with God. Worldliness had set in and they're showing partiality to the rich. Chapter two, verses one through 13. It had set in in their unbridled tongues, chapter three, one through 12. It had set in in their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, chapter three, 13 through 18. And now we see it here in their quarreling and their fighting, chapter four, one through three. They're coveting in their selfishness, chapter four, one through three. What's being reflected is an allegiance to the world rather than a submission to God. One commentator says the audience has, a wrong, has the wrong object for a lover. Instead of God, they have the object of a fallen world system and the values of the world. And the imagery is startling. They are committing spiritual adultery. These Christians have a new lover. They've become friends with the world, but more soberly, they've become an enemy towards God. When the world is put in the place of God, it is impossible to be a friend with God. When world takes the place of God, it is impossible for us to be a friend of God because God doesn't have his rightful place in our hearts. And so really we could say for every human, there are only two possible objects of affection each and every day. It's either God himself or it's the values of this world that are opposed to God. The original readers had been seduced. I wonder this morning how alert we are to our own seduction. How alert we are to following suit, beginning to chase other lovers, trying to get from the world what the world cannot give. James confronts the reader, and this morning, by extension, he's confronting us to address spiritual unfaithfulness. And notice the reaction of God in verse five. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. There's debate here over verse five because he says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And you're thinking, okay, what passage is he referencing? And there's not a passage that speaks to this. There's not a passage that quotes this. And what James seems to be doing is giving us what he's been doing throughout all of his letters, giving us this kind of summation of 
the letter of the law. And so perhaps the reader was listening, going, okay, why in the world is friendship with the world? How is that so grievous? Why is that such a big deal? And verse five tells us why it's a big deal, because God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. J. Alec Motier says, James takes up a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible, that God is like an ardent man who's taking a bride. God the Father has loved his people, his bride. He's called them to himself through the proclamation of the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then he's placed his spirit inside of them. And he is jealous for them. God longs for the undivided attention and the uncompromised affections and allegiances of his people. And the worldliness that has set in in his people provokes his jealousy because it was God who initiated this relationship, not man. And this relationship requires unwavering affection and allegiance. This is a holy jealousy. Holy jealousy is a characteristic of holy love. J.I. Packer says, holy jealousy is a zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when it's broken. This reminder of, of his jealousy and his love. It's a reminder of the exclusivity of his love and his zeal to protect his people and to keep that relationship intact. I'm helped. I'm thinking about the jealousy. It brought to mind just how so many people can be confused at this concept of God being a jealous God. If you know anything about Oprah Winfrey, Oprah would say that one of the reasons she doesn't believe in Christianity is because she was sitting in a service and the pastor was talking about how God is a jealous God and Oprah thought to herself, thought to herself if God is jealous of me, then he can't be God. And just going, no, 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 Oprah, uh, certainly you had to miss something. Something went awry in the notes that you were taking. God's jealousy is not built around, oh, look at what they have. I'm jealous because I want something that they have. We've already talked about this week in and week out. We don't have anything. And so his jealousy isn't of something that he lacks and he needs. And so he's jealous of us. No, he puts his spirit in us. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for us, not jealous of us. His jealousy stems from the love of his own name and the hope that our joy in that name might reflect something of his good grace and his inestimable worth. God's jealousy is not built around, they have something that I lack. God's jealousy is I have given them something that they need and I want my bride to not lose that. John Piper said, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, gives her the, the 
gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and his power and his mercy scorned if she was to ever become faith, faith unfaithful. The words of verses four and five must have been shocking to hear. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I just want you to know God is no less jealous for you. He is no less jealous for you. And the spirit that he has put in you, he is a jealous spirit. James isn't trying to be mean or to be harsh. He's trying to be like a caring spiritual surgeon to give us a diagnosis. If you're in the doctor's office and you're sitting in the gown and the news comes in that you have this, your first question is, is there a cure? And to my friends that maybe are watching that are not followers of Jesus, I just want you to know that this is your condition. You are a friend with the world. And because you are a friend with the world, you are an enemy with God. And this is evident not only in your family tree, your pedigree, follow it back. You will go all the way back to Adam and Eve, the first humans, representative for all of humanity. And they fell they rebelled at the height of folly. They rebelled against God's good design. But it's not just evident in your family history. It's also evident in your pursuit of the good life away from God. And James is reminding you this morning that God is jealous of your worship, of your affection, of your allegiance. And when you give that to any other you are rightly deserving of the jealous wrath, of the righteous holy wrath that stems, that rises from holy anger. And you will experience the due penalty for that sin of not giving God what he's rightly worthy of. Death and an eternal separation from him. My non-Christian friends, this is deadly. Your need this morning is not merely to fix a relationship you have with a friend. Your need this morning is to address the relationship with your creator, the one whom you will give an account for at the end whenever you take your last breath. Behind this invitation to approach God is the fullest display of the kindness and the generosity of God because this invitation could not be issued to sinners if our most serious conflict was not already resolved. And so there's an invitation to approach the Father, to humbly ask him to address our hearts and to meet our needs. The conflict between God and man, God and you, God and me. And there's only one way to resolve that conflict. And that's not you doing your good works in order to make him proud. You can't do enough good. But you can put your efforts down and completely trust 
in the finished work of Jesus, his perfect life, his death as a substitute on the cross, and his bodily resurrection on the third day. There's an invitation that stands for for those of us who finds who find finds ourselves in this war back and forth. There's an invitation to come to God and to address our need. And my non-Christian friend, there's an invitation for you to turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in him alone. Would you respond today? If you have questions about that, it would be the joy of any member of our church to have a follow-up conversation with you. Please reach out. Let someone know. I want to know further about how I end this war between myself and God and how I then become not just kind of at a peaceable, distant relationship with him, but how I become one that he embraces and welcomes in. Your only hope is grace. And that leads us to our second point, that grace is the greater cure. Grace is the greater cure. We see this in the back half of our passage today, verses six through 10. Immediately after informing the readers of God's jealousy, he reminds them of God's grace. God will provide the grace needed in order to restore a relationship with him. Augustine said, God gives what he demands. And verse six has been called one of the most comforting verses in all of the scripture. And I would want, my hope and my prayer has been that you and I would be able to get in on that comfort this morning, that that we, each one of us would feel the full impact and the full force of this comfort. What a gracious and generous God that we serve and that we belong to. One commentator put it this way, what comfort there is in this verse, verse six that he gives a greater grace. What comfort there is in this verse. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. And if one is a Christian and one is being tempted by the world, God gives more grace to resist that seduction and to remain loyal to him. If one has been seduced, God gives more grace so that there would be forgiveness and the ability to turn and to walk in repentance. There is always, Richard Sibbs said this best, there is always more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There is more grace in God than there is sin in us. Thus, let there be hope in every heart of a Christian this morning. Every heart. It doesn't matter how bogged down you are in the deceitfulness and the ensnarement of sin. Regardless of the temptation, regardless of the sin, regardless of the trial, there is always more grace in Christ than sin, than temptation, than hardship in us. And what's crazy is that his disposition is to always give. It's to always give. You and I grow weary in asking. He never grows weary in giving. He never stops giving. And here's the thing. If we sit through enough sermons, we will hear this enough. and We will no longer have our hearts melted by this truth. 
Brothers and sisters, let our hearts be melted at this. If we're not jumping on the inside, up and down, if we're not jumping at God's grace to spiritual adulterers like ourselves, we're missing this. His well never runs dry. He is an overflowing, unceasing fountain of goodness and grace. And it runs to those who could never earn it and who never deserve it. There is always more grace in him than sin in us. There is always more and more and more and more. I could keep going. And James clarifies who receives this grace in verse six. And he clarifies it with a warning and with a promise. And warnings throughout scriptures are expressions of God's mercy and his kindness. They're not expressions of his frustration. Warnings are intended to protect us. And this warning is sobering and it's frightening. And the warning is this, God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. He is actively opposed to the proud. He's not indifferent to the proud. He hasn't forgotten about the proud. He is actively opposed to the proud. And then there's a promise that follows the warning. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is the pharmacy of grace. Humility. This grace is not just forgiving grace when we've sinned. It's also empowering grace to resist the seduction of the world and to grow in godliness. The God who says here that my grace is sufficient, that I give it, also says there are matters of obedience. And so there is a grace to receive and there is a grace to obey. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verses seven through 10, we see what humility looks like. And it comes in the form of three couplets. The first one is to resist, or excuse me, to submit to God and to resist the devil. Verse seven, submit to God, resist the devil. The organizing command for all other commands that follow are submit to God. Humility is glad submission to God. It's not arrogant contending with God. Submit to God. Is that the posture of your heart in all of your ways? Submit to God. But it's not just submit to God. Also resist the devil. Resist the demonic wisdom that he referenced in James 3, 14 and 15. And the promise about our resistance of the enemy is that when we resist him, there is a promise from the word of God that says, as we resist him, he will flee from us. And that's not a, he's fled and he's never coming back. No, he will come back perhaps even in the next moment. But he does not have staying power. 
As we resist Satan, we are assured that he will flee. Satan is a defeated foe, and when he is resisted, he flees. What a comforting promise. What a comforting promise to find in the midst of all of these commands. He's a defeated foe because of the person and the work of Jesus. What sin are you continually giving into that you're not willing to resist? Because perhaps you don't believe that if you resist, he will flee. If I can just encourage you, take God up on his word this week. Resist the devil. There is a grace to resist. Grace doesn't just come in to help us when we failed. Grace comes in to also empower us not to fall. Second couplet. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So this couplet of draw near to God and cleanse your hands. Draw near to God. The jealous God who has been offended invites the reader invites us to draw near to him and assures us that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. One author said, God finds us in bed with the world and he still wants us back. This invitation should leave you freshly amazed at the grace of God. This is one of the ways in which he gives more grace. He says, draw near to me. If I'm writing this, I'm thinking, okay, you probably want to do the cleanse yourself first. And then once you're clean, then you draw near to God. But no, the ordering of the couplet makes sense. You draw near to him, come to the fountain that will cleanse you and then find yourself being cleansed. Why in the world would he call us to come to himself because he delights to give more grace. Even though you and I are unfaithful, even though you and I drift, he delights to give more grace. His response is to confront and to convict and then to invite us back. And the promise is that if we come back, we will be received. Submit to God. Draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? We draw near to God through the ordinary means of grace. We draw near to God through reading the word, studying the word, putting ourselves in front of the word, intaking the word. We draw near to God through prayer. We draw near to God through fellowship with other believers. There are many ways in which we draw near to God. We draw near to God even when we don't want to draw near to God. Why? Because he is, the, he is the living God and he's promised that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So this afternoon, you have no desire to read the word. Can I encourage you? Read the word. Draw near to him. Even when your flesh doesn't move you to sing. Even when your flesh can come up with every reason not to sing, we sing until we feel like singing. Why? Because we are consistent and we're giving ourselves to drawing near to him. 
Where is the space in your life where you are pursuing God? Because it requires humility for us to carve out time and to say, I leak and I am in need of being filled again. It requires humility to say, I need you every day, moment by moment. Draw near to God. In response to national crisis and racial tensions, draw near to God. You don't know how to respond? Draw near to God. Drawing near to God will keep us from sinning against others, whether in anger or in apathy. Grace will serve us. The grace that we find in nearness to God will serve us not to look down in disdain at others. And the church of all people are to be the people who put this on display. What does it look like when times are, are difficult? It's all the more reason for us to draw near to God and to cleanse our hands. Distance ourselves from worldliness. It's not just submit to God. I want to do, you, uh, do what you say and trust what you say. It's also be devoted to God. I want to be near to you. I want to be with you. And then the last couplet, verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep, coupled with let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. James isn't trying to be a killjoy. James is trying to encourage these people to come to the end of themselves and looking for joy in other places outside of God. And he says, when you have done that and you see that and you recognize that, you repent and you mourn. And the things that brought you joy, you kill them. Your laughter stops and you become heavy over the state of your soul. Laughter and joy is inappropriate in light of spiritual adultery. Their laughter and joy reveal how casually they view their sin. And so this week, as you give attention to your own soul, I wonder what it looks like for you to just marinate on these couplets. Submit to God, resist the devil, and the promise, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and the promise, he will draw near to you. And cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. And then the last couplet, repent, mourn. Replace laughter with mourning. Not because James says don't have fun, but because James knows on the other side of repentance, there is a joy that is only known going through repentance. And verse 10 concludes, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This passage is peppered with promises. Humility is the godly alternative to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And repentance says, remove anything that's keeping me from knowing you. God welcomes the needy. God welcomes the weak. God welcomes the poor. God welcomes those of us who come to him honestly and in humility. And he says this beautiful thing over and over again. He that comes to me, I will never turn them away. And so I would say to you this morning, come, go to God. 
Your marriage needs for you to go to God. Your children need for you to go to God. Your friends need for you to go to God. This world, this community needs you to go to God. Your church needs you to go to God because the problem of brokenness that we experience every day is not merely the problem that's around us. It's the problem that is in us. It's our wandering and disloyal hearts. And so go to God. And if you go, He will receive. He will deliver. He will empower. And he will forgive. What kind of God loves like this? Let's pray. God, help us. Help us consider your word. Remind us of ways that we are pursuing friendship with the world. And give us spirit-wrought brokenness over that. Remind us of ways in which we're sinning in relationships and give us sin-wrought brokenness over that. And we're thankful for the invitation the invitation to no repentance, to no true joy. And that's found only because you give greater grace. So would you melt our hearts even now? Overwhelm us with your grace so that we would then desire to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And so ask that in this moment of silence, you would reflect on how you are to respond.